Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm joined by my colleagues Claire Fox and David Bowden to discuss the events and the news this week. Let's start with the elections last week and the fallout from them. So there were elections across the UK for the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, London's Mayor and Assembly and for local councils. So what do we think? Who were the winners and losers? Well, I do think that the mainstream commentators who've said and noted that the Labour Party didn't do badly enough for it to lead to a coup in relation to Jeremy Corbyn have got it right. Objectively, they were hammered, however. Uh, they certainly were not able to take advantage of the any disarray in the Conservative Party or to gain from being an opposition party, which you can sometimes make gains. And they were humiliated in Scotland, which is obviously for the Labour Party a, a terrible thing. So just to note some interesting bits along the way, Sadiq Khan winning a London for Labour was an incredibly impressive feat, but it's not going to save the Labour Party, and it's not in many ways to do with the Labour Party. I think that the Zach Goldsmith campaign, which did ratchet up fear in relation to Sadiq Khan's association with extremism, backfired on them. But I think it's worth noting that the real problem with Zach Uh, standing for the Conservatives as Mayor of London, is is that his main USP is to be anti-economic growth, anti-cities and to want to live in the country. So that doesn't seem to me to have been the best candidate to put forward to run a dynamic city. Some other things of note is that London actually got two UKIP members, uh, Peter Whittle, who's spoken at Battle of Ideas events actually over the years, and another colleague. That's not been commented on, but it's actually of some significance. It's also worth noting that Wales, where I was brought up, the Labour voters collapsed somewhat. Uh, I mean, they're still the major party, but UKIP have also made serious gains there, and I think that is a real working-class disillusionment with the abandonment of the Labour Party and the betrayals. One Plaid Cymru, Leanne Woods, has been uh, elected to the Welsh Assembly. I think that her profile by being given free airtime by the BBC every time you move, as though she represents the people of Wales because she's a Plaid Cymru member, has boosted her personal profile, but does not mean a resurgence of Welsh nationalism. And the latest rumours are is that she's done a deal with UKIP in order to lead the opposition against Labour, which, if it's true, will be so hilarious, and it's certainly what the papers were saying yesterday. And then the final thing is, is that I do think that the fact that the SNP have not got overall control, I mean they're still almost the only you know, that it's almost a one party state in Scotland but I do think that the fact that there is now an unlikely opposition in the form of the Conservatives who really did well in the elections means that the SNP at least have some halt to their kind of forward march of a liberalism and one of the first things which the leader of the Conservative Party in Scotland said was that she was going to be opposing the named persons legislation so hurrah for that I don't care whether she's a Tory she's on the side of freedom in my opinion on that one yeah the big winners I think throughout the elections have generally been the electorates who seem to have chosen very wisely and well and actually quite intelligently um, in most of these cases so particularly with you know, London that was a thing that actually it was a, it was a battle really over um, the conception of modern London and it was kind of quite striking that Goldsmith's campaign was attacking Khan as a kind of you know extremist alien presence when in reality he's probably the most you know London figure you could 
imagine a kind of you know uh, your son of a, a Pakistani bus driver as he liked to remind us during the campaign a metropolitan liberal human rights lawyer a careerist Blairite politician um, you know for, for all of those many things you may consider flaws or kind of problems that is ultimately an, a fairly good embodiment of what London is in the 21st century with all of those kind of issues versus somebody who wanted to essentially roll back the clock and stop um, London from happening who doesn't want expansion of airports doesn't want economic growth you know is really kind of opposed to any of the positive developments of London as a global city in the 21st century so the fact that Goldsmith has been kind of so kind of roundly defeated um, and that, you know, what was a, a vicious, nasty campaign, largely built around politics of fear, no positivity, that, that was dispatched, is a good thing. You know, obviously, generally speaking, actually, it's not exactly a resounding <coughs> mandate for, for Khan as such. Actually, you know, the voter turnouts were actually fairly quite low, but given the choice, actually, people went for the best um, option. And actually, it is quite striking, actually, when you look at... Uh, UKIP's gains, and actually when you look at people like Peter Whittle in UKIP, who are much more sophisticated and surprising, actually, they're very different from what people's conceptions of UKIP candidates would be, because they're people who are engaged in debates, understanding debates about London and nationhood and citizenship in the 21st century, are much more able to, to speak to people on the doorstep and engage with their concerns than, you know, the outsider from Richmond, Goldsmith. And again, in Scotland, it's, you know, it's good that actually there has been some real kind of keenness to provide opposition to the SNP who've kind of really misjudged stuff over the uh, named persons that given this is supposed to be um, you know the kind of party who's speaking for the for the soul of the Scottish people um, actually they've been knocked back from having a mandate to push for another independence referendum so in many ways the um, Scottish electorate can now feel as if they've uh, managed to you know have their say of setting out better terms and conditions for themselves, but actually are still kind of backing the UK. Um, so actually it's not just the matter of the the, the 45 um, who can claim to, to try and argue for Scottish independence, but actually the majority have asserted themselves. And there is actually a genuine hope of debate and disagreement within Scottish politics, which I think is positive. Yes, Simon, uh, it, it is good news that the SNP have, uh, have, have lost that overall majority, although given that the Greens did quite well and they seem to be hanging on their coattails on, on quite a few issues, whether, whether that actually succeeds in stopping some of these this more liberal legislation going through is, is another matter. But the collapse of Labour in Scotland continues apace. I mean, it's just astonishing. That was almost as dominant as the SNP are now, and an absolute kind of safe place to parachute people into to, uh, to win seats. Le- the le- last Labour government, particularly under Gordon Brown, was, was stuffed full of Scots. You know, who, you know, most of them have gone from politics now. So it's a it's an, an extraordinary situation. Just just so that Labour's got some real problems, especially with a notably left wing person at the, the head of the party. So the idea that it's just about the Blairites seems to have been sort of contradicted by, by that result. You know, the Corbyn would seem to represent an old school Labour party, and and yet they they're still doing really really badly. Yeah, I just uh, I think one of the overall things to note is just in a positive sense, although it does mean that things are a bit out of control, is the fluidity of party politics at the moment. I mean, nothing is given, nothing is to be assumed. So George Galloway was absolutely humiliated in the London election, was not able to 
mobilise hardly any votes at all. I think uh, certainly the Women's Equality Party beat him. Now, I'm no great fan of the Women's Equality Party, but it's enjoyable to see him getting a drubbing. The fact that there is a Women's Equality Party would indicate that there's sort of new things happening in politics. I don't like the premises of it at all. Um, but it did gain quite a lot of votes, not enough to get anyone elected, but it just shows you that things are changing quite a lot. The fact that UKIP can pick people, I mean, it's, and it's not even like the Farage UKIP factor, as Dave has indicated, something else going on there. The Liberals, by the way, their demise account carries on a pace. Um, so UKIP did better than the Liberals in London. Just let's think about that for a minute. What? But it's, I think, on a positive note, it means that there's all to play for. I think that it's also important to note that although the Zach Goldsmith campaign played a very vicious card in relation to constantly going on about Sadiq Khan's associations and so on, that those people who say that, you know, Islamophobia is rife in the country, who are we kidding, right? I mean, (laughs) Sadiq Khan's just won this major victory... And so, you know, Islamophobia is obviously not rife in London, is it? I mean, it's a nonsense. In other words, people are prepared. It's irrelevant that he is a Muslim. And I think it's really dangerous that people have tried to emphasise in celebrating his victory that he's a Muslim, if you know what I mean. Because it seems to me it's equally as hopeless um, a way of playing the identity card as those who attack him that his being a Muslim might mean something dubious. Just the other thing to note is, is that I'm not sure that the independence over the whole of the country have done well. So whereas you might say, oh, it's very fluid and things are changing, some of the more prominent independents have lost out. I mean, when I say prominent, one of the people is George Ferguson in Bristol, who actually, as an independent mayor, had seemed to be, you know, very popular, got absolutely trounced by the Labour Party there. So the positive thing for me is that there's everything to play for. You know, that anything can happen in politics and... Your example, Rob, of the shift and the change and the absolutely amazing, uh, you know, refocus of Scottish politics is not that I celebrate that because of the SNP, who I despise, but that I think anyone who says that nothing changes, everything's the same, we're stuck in a rut, that's just not true anymore. Anything could happen. Well, well, one of the uh, issues that came out of the election was the coverage of it and in particular singled out has been Laura Koonsberg who's the political editor at the BBC obviously spent a lot of time talking about this to camera over the past few weeks and there's been a lot of criticism from Corbynistas about the way that she's been very critical of Labour's campaign you know constantly talking about turmoil in the ranks within the parliamentary party and downplaying the results and, and saying that they were, they were bad for Labour. So there's been calls for her to be sacked and a petition online to, for her to be sacked. So one is, did, any, did Laura Koonsberg say anything that was untrue or completely biased? And two, what do we think about the way in which it's been handled in terms of people uh, dealing with that? Well, I think it was interesting about story and kind of feeds into what we were talking about is that there is a bit of a kind of obsession um, across the media with you know with the kind of sort of personalities and kind of figureheads and that's actually the reminder that there is a thing called the Labour Party which um, in many ways has been rejected fairly soundly uh, kind of from a democratic perspective at the last election but actually still has quite a lot of power at local authority levels and this is a kind of large party that has no at this point kind of clear sense of purpose or kind of direction that there is a kind of massive sense of 
the the party leadership being at odds with each other. There is the kind of Corbyn effect, and that no one it kind of really is certain about what this kind of party stands for, and the kind of sort of sense of clear debate. And both sides are pretty bad on that. So you know, the Corbynistas are this fairly kind of fierce faction, which are kind of you know are a bit of sort of a throwback to kind of Stalinist old lefty kind of sort of methods of trying to purge out the uh, the kind of wrong members really obsessed with the media themselves kind of poisonously obsessed with doing that but then you also do have the anti-Corbyn wing who don't want to come out and stage a coup which is kind of pretty much how everything has always worked within New Labour everyone is always wanting to hold a coup but no one actually has to want to seize the political moment to do that who will sit there and you know, continually, in a way, sort of snipe at the you know the electoral demands of their own party membership. Whatever you sort of think about what that direction is, they refuse to kind of go out and have that argument. So it it, it really is the you know while this is kind of balled over into into kind of Coonsberg territory, it's, it's this is an argument by full of both sides who don't really want to to deal with the matter in hand, and they kind of want to f- fixate around smaller issues like whether they feel that Corbyn has been well represented. Yeah, I mean, I can't say that I would want to be a political commentator on mainstream politics because you're going to fall foul of someone. Because it's actually quite difficult to make an assessment of the Labour Party at the present time. It's certainly right that a political commentator should not say that the Labour Party had a triumphant evening at the elections. So if she's being attacked for bias, for, for not saying bring the bunting out, but objectively noting that in any historic sense this was not a good night for them even though it was not as bad a night as it could have been you know that seems reasonable comment to me I also think that we I mean memories are so short isn't it I mean only just before the election the Labour Party were embroiled in a huge row about anti-semitism in their ranks now the thing about that row was people will know who know the Institute of Ideas that we have been raising the issue of the problem of anti-semitism particularly on the left for some years And people have said that we were absolutely making it up, it didn't exist, that we were exaggerating it. And that's why it seems very peculiar to me that when it became a way of bashing, you know, Ken and the Corbynistas and and leading to a party purge, suddenly every Blairite in town was queuing up to say there's a major problem of anti-Semitism. You do think, well, where were you when we asked you to speak at the Battle of Ideas and we couldn't get anyone on a panel? Because they said, oh, no, we don't want to do that then. Um, you know, so it'll just show you how things change. But I think, therefore, that sense of a, of a civil war that never dares speak its name in the Labour Party, too cowardly to organise a proper challenge to Corbyn, but desperate to demonise Corbyn supporters by banding around the phrase anti-Semitism and kind of demanding that the party be cleansed. And I think Corbyn's done a fair bit to kick people out. But anyway, that's, I think, what somebody like Laura Kunzberg will be reflecting on when she thinks this party looks like in a bit of disarray. You can't blame a political commentator for the fact that they're all at each other's throats. However, there's something else to say. Even though I think that the Corbynistas are being absolutely hounded by the Blairites, I have noticed that the most ardent supporters of the Corbyn faction are a bit like the Scots Nats trolls factor. In the, I mean, you only have to make a minor criticism of Corbyn for the whole of Twitter wrath to descend on you and you get called a right-wing bitch, a Tory. It's assumed that any criticism of Corbyn means that you are, you know, really kind of beyond the pale. And there's been serious attacks on on Neil Kinnock in the last week. Who knew? Who remembered him? But anyway, Neil Kinnock has come under the, uh, the hammer. 
and 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 there's talk of Derek Hatton being rehabilitated to low part. I feel like I'm living through some other period. But I'm saying that because Neil Kinnock was like sort of you know right wing Tory scum. So you've got that sort of atmosphere going on, and they're the people who have who will not allow any criticism of Corbyn. You then say that Laura Cunsberg, because she's once made a criticism in a comment on Newsnight or something, must be right-wing Tory scum not giving Corbyn a fair airtime. So they, inevitably, what do they do? The people who say we shouldn't be having purges in the Labour Party and we should be tolerant, say, let's have a petition and sack the bitch. And that's literally the kind of phrases that they've been using. So this massive petition... They want to sack a political commentator. What? What happened to, uh, you know, giving, you know, it's like sort of a McCarthyite witch hunt here. Who else are they going to have in line that they don't like the opinions of? That's one thing. However, then, because this is what always happens, the people who defend Laura Kunzberg don't defend Laura Kunzberg as a political journalist, but defend her as a woman. So you then get the likes of Jess Phillips, Labour MP, not Corbynista, who says this is an example of institutionalised misogyny in the Labour Party. They have demanded that the petition be removed because some people have made sexist comments on the petition and they say that all the attacks on Laura Kunzberg is because she's a woman and this proves that women can never get anywhere in politics and etc, etc. The petition has been removed, politics has taken two steps back, no one is more enlightened and life is more illiberal as a consequence of both sides of this behaving badly. I mean, if I had a criticism of Laura Kunzberg, and but it would be equally of you know the whole coverage of politics at the moment is it's so obsessed with the machinations within the the different parties. It's all it's kind of like a gossip column rather than uh, a serious discussion of what's going on you know in the wider country and, and the political changes that we've discussed there and, and something similar has been happening with brexit it's all been or it's been too focused on you know boris versus dave and all that sort of stuff so i saw a a bit of an interview on good morning britain where boris johnson's being interviewed by Piers Morgan and and the, again he goes on about what will the Tory party do afterwards you know you, aren't, aren't you at loggerheads blah 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 blah. And Boris quite rightly said I think there's more important issues here than you know personalities or the, the what's going on in the Conservative Party. Good answer. Piers Morgan's follow-up. By the way Boris you seem to have combed your hair is this your new look because you want to look prime ministerial. It's like ridiculously facile. But talking of ridiculously facile in relation to the Brexit debate, we've had some very, very bizarre arguments made over the past week or so about the effect that voting for Brexit would have. So David Cameron talked about world war. Gordon Brown was talking about it's just not British to to vote for Brexit. What do we make of those comments? Well, it's always extraordinary how much comes up in these arguments how how little faith people seem to have actually in the, in the success of the European project. You know, there's surely the kind of unique historical feature of European integration, the whole purpose of this was to unite a, a, a continent perpetually at war with itself, to break down cultural barriers, to create a, a European demos where we would have, you know, hitherto unknown levels of peace and prosperity. And what do they tell us now in 2016? If we attempt to do any political changes to that, we will have war. 
and they will come out and attempt to destroy us economically. That is the language that is used. These people who we're supposed to sit in union with, who the great success of that is um, supposed to be, will come out and destroy us. If we try to put any kind of political challenge to them. And that, for me, is really actually quite astounding, because you do just think... And, you know, there are many things that I do like about the European project. You know, there are many things that I kind of want to celebrate within it. I do think there have been aspects where you can say as a particular political project for a particular period of time post-war you might say there are some good things about that but certainly that doesn't seem to be the agreement with anyone who's classing themselves as pro-European in this debate they're kind of deploying the kind of politics of fear and it seems also fantasy to kind of hold this together it shows that they themselves don't even understand what the kind of purpose of what they're defending here I, um, you know, a, a, a mainstream commentary, that, though this might be, is perfectly right, which is if the Prime Minister of this country seriously thinks that leaving the European Union will lead to world war, what kind of a lunatic was he to have organised a referendum? I mean, now we've been told that the referendum is, do you want to live in peace or do you want war? Right. If that were the case, then uh, he shouldn't have ever had a referendum on it because it's not the sort of thing you ask people, is it? And also... The uh, you know he is getting desperate in in these states, but it's actually led to the one thing I will say is it's led to an interesting conversation because people have pointed out that actually can we just query a little bit the idea of peace in our time, you know that the European project has been a wholly peaceful one. On the one hand, there have actually been wars in Europe. People have rightly noted that the EU has potentially ratcheted up some of those wars. The EU's intervention in the Balkans conflict, it does not cover them in glory and has led to many unforeseen circumstances. But, you know, Bosnia, radical Islam, you know, civil war in countries, let alone, as people have also noted, the fact that the EU's intervention in relation to Russia means that there's a conflict in relation to Ukraine. Certainly they've got some responsibility there. As soon as people have raised that, however, of course, inevitably, the Remainers say, oh, you're pro-Putin, you like dictators. And you think, oh, God, the level of debate is so depressing. But actually, I also think that the idea that Europe is a united, peaceful place beyond war is also misleading because on the streets of Greece at the moment, people are being water-cannoned and tear-gassed because the EU intervention in that country is a further degrading, uh, you must put up with more austerity, you know, a never-ending economic war. The way that the Eastern Europeans are discussed by the uh, EU bureaucrats is like backwards, you know, you might be a member, but how, you know, you must do as we say because you're all backward, racist types. We don't like you, you know, when they're talking about Hungary, Poland and so on. So it isn't a happy, clappy, we all sit around in the circle, no tensions place whatsoever. There's major tensions within the EU. Nobody, of course, wants inter-European war. Guess what? But the EU does not guarantee peace. And we should be able to have this debate without threatening each other with military Armageddon um, and have a more intelligent, uh, nuanced discussion. Yeah, which also, when you look at how that stands in contrast to um, the events in Palmyra, uh, where to mark the kind of liberation of Palmyra from ISIS, from a kind of with the Russian support, um, supported Syrian uh, army, they've staged a, you know, a huge kind of concert of classical music and sort of ballet to really kind of assert... 
um, the kind of liberation of this place. And it's a fantastic piece of political theatre and kind of old-fashioned propaganda. There's a great article by um, Tim Black in, in Spite Online this week, which was kind of taking through the sort of staging of this. But this was a kind of big... Bolshe kind of statement of that, you know, we are standing for civilization against barbarism, countering the kind of ISIS political theatre where they stage these garish, gaudy executions. And, you know, they have reclaimed a sort of part of sort of civilization. And, you know, there's lots of elements which are kind of worth picking apart. There's a lot of kind of questions about how sort of Putin has sort of styled it to be very much a kind of celebration of Russian culture rather than Western culture. Although, you know, I look at. Um, great Russian classical music and ballet and think, well, I think that's part of my culture and Western culture um, as much as anything else. And, you know, despite what you may think about Russia's involvement in uh, Syria as a, as a foreign policy intervention, there's a serious debate to be had about that. Certainly a serious debate to be had about um, how Putin upholds any values of uh, liberalism and freedom and democracy uh, in Russia. That's certainly fine. But as a big Bolshe kind of commitment to what we stand for um, when faced with people who are nakedly and explicitly in opposition to that, you know, that really does make them look like titans in comparison to this tiny, petty argument in Europe, which is convincing ourselves we're on the brink of civil war if we decide to slightly change our political and economic union organisation. Yeah, uh, we, we will certainly come back to um, Brexit and these wider discussions. But just to note that on Tuesday the 17th of May, we have a big debate in London about the EU referendum with speakers David Davis, Bruno Waterfield, Simon Nixon and Vicky Price. Uh, that's happening at Good Enough College in the evening. Tickets are available. Uh, you can buy them at the website, instituteofideas.com. So if you are in London next week, uh, please do come along to that. And from the big to the small, uh, the other big issue that has occurred in British politics this week is about exams for children. Um, so there's much hand-wringing about how difficult the SATs tests are proving to be and how kids are stressed out. Uh, we've even seen a so-called kids' strike where parents were refusing to let their kids go to school. What do we think about all of this? The first thing to note is that there are major problems with the particular SATs regime as they've set it up. And I wouldn't want to just simply say that SATs are a good thing because teaching to the test has become problematic in primary schools, no doubt about it, well, in secondary schools, but and no doubt SATs has had some something to do with that. But the arguments against SATs are wholly backward as they're being deployed by the anti-SATs campaigners. Educationally, they're backward because... They basically object to testing per se and say that no one should be ever assessed and it's too competitive and it, and so on. And that is ridiculous. I mean, you have to have some way of assessing how uh, young people get knowledge. They say, leave it up to the teachers to do teacher assessment. But that has been hugely problematic over the years when that's been done. So objective tests have always been a meritocratic intervention and it's worth noting that examinations in the 19th century were fought for by the trade unions who basically argued that national examinations allowed everyone a fair crack rather than, you know, kind of the favours handed out by who you knew. It was what you knew. So that's the tradition in which I stand on that. The other problem with the anti-SATS campaign is the emphasis on the damage to the children's psychology of the stress of having to do tests. So the media has played this game, you know, along with this game, 
And, you know, there's just photos and films everywhere of children crying before a test versus running freely in the blue be- in the woods with the bluebells, you know, as though somehow uh, that's actually education. I mean, kids might want to run around and never do any work, but my view is, is that education says, yes, we know that, darling. Um, get in there and learn your adverbs. The part of the argument against the test has been that they're too difficult, which obviously is something quite philistine about that. Maybe they aren't quite age-appropriate, but everybody that I've spoken to off the record often will say, do you know what? I didn't even know my kids were doing SATs. They just kind of got on with it. <laughs> we never really noticed. The the uh, other thing is, is that any seven-year-old who walks around talking about damage to their self-esteem and uh, stress and trauma and anxiety are simply uh, using the language that their parents' generation have given them to express their displeasure at having to do any work. They are not actually on the brink of a mental health uh, time bomb. Um, It is interesting, however, that the government who should never have appointed a mental health champion for schools in the first place because it was never necessary, had to axe same mental health champion, Natasha Devon, because she actually did come out and say that any academic pressure will lead to mental health problems for all children. And it dawned on them that things had maybe got too far. So they quietly said, do go away, Natasha Devon. Um, And so they got rid of her. I don't usually support sackings, but in that instance... I did. And my final line on this is that I have been arguing, and it's part of the thesis of my new book, I find that offensive, that the crisis in relation to free speech on campuses and the emergence of a generational fragility of young adults who are very easily offended and demand safety and not to be discomforted um, and who actually say that exam pressure at university leads to mental health problems or that they will have be triggered into a kind of PSTD style kind of you know mental health problem if they are taught certain things my argument has been that they learnt that before they ever arrived on campus at schools and I think the anti-SATS campaign and particularly the kids strike gives you ample evidence of how we are socialising and rearing Generation Snowflake far younger than just when they're 18 and go to university or leave school yeah, and really failing them at the level of content. For me, that's the most um, striking thing. And although it's easy to kind of kind of parody this as the kind of from the big to the small, I mean, this is a it's, a, it's watching the kind of collapse of a kind of institution of the kind of any kind of faith in the education system here. You know, you have uh, disgruntled SATS markers leaking, you know, exam papers. You have parents essentially kind of encouraging their kids to go on strike to go into school. And the actual arguments that are being deployed about SATs is that, you know, that 10-year-olds shouldn't be having to learn about uh, tenses or grammar and they should be outside playing. And you think that is, you know, actually quite appalling. We're actually saying that it's, it's more important for kids to run around and be kids rather than learn about how to express, articulate, engage with the world. This is actually what's at stake. It's not about a debate about whether exams are a good thing or not. People are actively saying that actually you do, don't have to have a kind of well-rounded uh, educative toolkit that can equip you throughout life here, actually. that is, This is really actually about a debate about what's the best way to just secure people's qualifications and advancements later in life. And actually the people who are going to be really failed by this are generally working class kids who are increasingly have more and more pressures placed around the education system that says the purpose of education is not to educate you, that is not to give you a critical set of 
tools and understanding of the world that you can you can take forward. It doesn't necessarily matter how well you excel in it, but actually will give you this kind of basic set of things. And I think it's actually something really concerning about the way in which people are playing out these political arguments through the school system on both sides. Conservative and Labour parties have been equally as bad at politicising the curriculum um, down the years. And for me, that you know is a real kind of cause of concern because it's it's Generation Snowflake who are more and more concerned about their mental kind of health and well-being and actually less interested in trying to understand about things outside of their mental well-being the actual world out there um and for me that is kind of creating a generation of um you know quite touchy um but also ignorant people and that's the that's the system that we as adults are creating uh, if you want to read more about the creation of generation snowflake as claire mentioned she has a new book out called i find that offensive you can find it very easily on Amazon and in all good bookshops. So do get hold of a copy of that. It's well worth a read. Uh, thank you both, Claire and David, for your contributions. Uh, if you would like to listen to more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, please visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. Thank you very much for listening.